85 if you ask those kids. <laughs> Our scripture text this morning is the same as it was last week. Uh, last week we did part one, this morning's part two. It's Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, and it reads like this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not, shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or his maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So last week we took a look at this, the, the tenth, the final commandment. And I said that a covetous person is someone with an insatiable craving for the possessions or life circumstances of others. And unfortunately, I think in our, in our culture, we're basically conditioned to covet. Uh, there are all those wonderful things that advertising tells us that we deserve or need. And, and oftentimes, I would say that Covetousness, then, is a result of envy. We look at someone else who we think has what we want, and we desire what they have. And oftentimes, um, well, it may be uh, a neighbor, a friend, a family member. They have something that I, that, that they, they have something that I want. And the thing is, I not only want what they have, but I may want what's even better. Because there's this feeling that we have of one-upmanship. Well, you've got it. Guess what? I've got the next greater model. And now it's kind of a status thing for us, isn't it? Mine's a little better than yours. And it's not only stuff. It may be things like I may covet a relationship you have. I may covet a talent you have. I may wish I had your job or your income. It's not just necessarily stuff. And I said that covetousness is a problem because it is a deceitful thing. Few people realize they are covetous, and even fewer people are willing to admit or confess that they are covetous. And I said that covetousness is destructive because it... it breaks this commandment that says, don't covet, but it also breaks the second commandment. That's the one about having no idols. Here God says that we're not to have idols in our lives, yet when we covet something, that thing begins to become the focus or priority in our lives. It becomes the focus of our thoughts, our time and our energy. In other, in other words, it has our allegiance and anything that has our allegiance is an idol in our lives. So it becomes idolatry. So we've not only broken the tenth commandment, we've broken the second commandment as well. So, so how do we combat this then? How do we combat the deceitful and destructive effects that covetousness can have on us? Well, we practice contentment. And it's not easy to be content. It does take practice. The Apostle Paul knew this, and listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. He said, I'm not saying this because I am in need. I have learned, underline that, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. 
I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned, underline that again, it's twice in this passage, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He learned this. It's a practice. John Muir was a great naturalist in the early part of the last century. He was largely responsible for the creation of Yellowstone National Park and the formation of conservation policy in our country. Muir lived a very simple life, and yet he once said that he was wealthier than railroad magnate E.H. Harriman, who had acquired millions of dollars. And when asked how he could say this, Muir replied like this, because I have all the money I want, and he doesn't. You see, Muir had practiced contentment. So let me share some ideas that will help. I was, you know, I had you. Let, I, had, I, I said, let me share some ideas that will help you practice. Then I cross it up and said, us, because I need, I need to practice it too. It's not like, well, hey, I've got it all figured out. Let me share some ideas that will help us practice contentment and cultivate contentment. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, Paul writes, but godliness with contentment is great gain. There's something about being content, isn't there? It's, I think it's restful. It's, it's peaceful. You're not... You're not dissatisfied all the time. Makes sense? And then in Hebrews 13.5, basically we're told to be content. Hebrews 13.5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content. Sounds like he's telling us this is what you're supposed to do. Keep your lives free from the love of money, which is, has a lot to do with the stuff that we can get then. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. In other words, you need to be content with me, with God. That should be enough for you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And he says in other places, I'll make sure your needs are met. Well, that all sounds good. How do we do this? Well, first of all, we do something that Mike gave us an example of already this morning. We practice gratitude. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. I love this passage of Scripture. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, with prayer and petition, excuse me, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the kinds of prayers that Paul are, is talking about here are prayers that we tend to pray more, most often. Prayer with petition. We ask God for stuff, right? I mean, I, I admit the bulk of my prayers are prayers for what I need, what you need. You know, the pastor gets the list of prayer concerns. So, and, and it's not all about stuff, I, 
a lot of it isn't about stuff. But, you know, there's healing needs and, and, and all kinds of stuff that we hear about. All right? So a lot of petition goes up to God. Paul says, oh, by the way, with thanksgiving, then present your request to God. So we come to God with those things we're anxious about, those situations in our lives that are difficult, hurtful, troubling. We ask God about those. Basically, we say, help. Don't we? Okay, that's what we do. And we are told, pray, petition. But when you do, remember to give thanks as well. Don't forget that aspect. Thanksgiving is a wonderful reminder of what God has already done in our lives. Provided for us in many ways He has blessed us so that our focus is not entirely on what we want or need God to do. Because it's easy to kind of fall into that kind of thing. That's when we pray. God, please help. Please do this. God, I need that. I need this. And because we're able to remember and give thanks to God for what He has done previously, then I think our faith is strengthened through those reminders as we give thanks to God to believe for what we are requesting God to do now as we pray. Because we're able to look back and see what God has done previously as we give thanksgiving to Him. Yes? In order to practice gratitude, we may need at times to be focused. Instead of looking at those who are better off than us and complaining about what we don't have, oh, this is my lot in life, how come God... You know, the psalmist did that too. He looked at... Why are those wicked guys succeeding the way they are? What's with that, God? And we tend to look at others who have more than us or seem to be better off than us. And, and sometimes we do the same thing. But instead of looking at those who are better off than us and complaining about our lot in life, we need to, need to look around at those who are less fortunate than us and give thanks to God. And folks, we need to look us through our eyes that are they seem to be more more fortunate than us. They might have more stuff. They might drive a nicer car than you do. They might have more money than that. But if you see what happens behind the door of their house, how miserable you and she feel better off. And then look to those stones of remembrance in your life. You know what I'm talking about? Those times in your history with God where you have seen Him come through in amazing ways and you can look back and say, if you're God did this. You celebrate recovery all the time. Those stones of remembrance that have been placed along the way those critical times in our lives when God came through and 
big or and it's impressed on our mind. Practice gratitude. Then live every day as if it were your last. Oh boy. That's kind of morbid. That's kind of fatalistic. Well, I'm not talking in those terms. I'm talking in terms of priorities. If you knew that tomorrow would be your last day, what would your priorities be? Would they change? James 4.14 Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I think James is encouraging us to live like every day would be our last. In 2004, country western singer Tim McGraw came out with a song entitled Live Like You Were Dying. Some of you might remember it. It went to number one on the charts and even spawned sermons on the topic. In fact, I did a series on Live Like You Are Dying. And so in in this song, he's talking about someone who um, had a, I would guess from from the tenor of this thing, that they got a diagnosis of cancer. And so here's what it says. He said, so like he's talking to this individual, I was in my early 40s with a lot of life before me, and a moment came that stopped me on a dime. I spent most of the next days looking at the x-rays, talking about the options, and talking about sweet time. I asked him, when it sank in that this might really be the real end, how has it hit you when you get that kind of news? Man, what'd you do? And he said, I went skydiving, I went Rocky Mountain climbing, I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. It's okay if Fu Manchu doesn't do a dance on your head when he throws you off. But he said, and I love deeper, and I spoke sweeter, and I gave forgiveness I'd been denying. And he said, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. He said, I was finally the husband that most of the time I wasn't. And I became a friend, a friend of life. And all of a sudden, going fishing wasn't such an imposition. And I went two times When I well, I finally read the book, and I took a good, long, hard book for what I do. Someday, I hope you get the chance to live like you were done. Why would he say that? Because he knew that when you live like you're dying, your priorities change. The really important things of life come into focus. It's no longer about the temporal, but more about the eternal. When that happens, we begin to see how blessed we are. And realize that all we have, realize all we have to be thankful for. My former DS Stephen Fletcher, when we were on the Northwest District, 
used to say this. When you're on your deathbed, the only things that will matter are your relationship with your family and your relationship with Jesus. Boy, how true that is. I don't think when it's time for my last breath, I'll say, boy, I wish I'd had that car I longed for or had another adventure in my life or had more money in the bank or maybe in a hedge invested more wisely. You know, uh, was it um, Chuck Swindoll that said, I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer? We cannot take it with us. It's those relationships with our family and with Lord Jesus that's going to matter at that moment. Live like you were dying. Remind yourself of who owns it all. Remind yourself of who owns it all. Psalm 24.1 The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. That's pretty clear. From Adrian Rogers, his book, Ten Secrets of a Successful Family. And it's a book, it's a, that book's about the Ten Commandments, how it applies to the family. He shares this story. He writes, a pastor friend of mine was talking to a U.S. congressman who told him, Pastor, I want to tell you, tell you what God taught me about giving. I took my son to McDonald's. He wanted some French fries, so I bought him a large order and we sat down for some father and son fellowship. As we sat at the table, I got to smelling those fries. I thought I would have a couple, so I reached over and started to take some, but my son put his hand on mine and said, Hey, those are mine. That just went right through me. I thought, my son has a bad attitude. But in that moment, in less time than it takes to tell it, God spoke to my heart and gave me one of the greatest lessons about stewardship I ever learned. Here's what the congressman said. He learned said he learned. He said, I thought three things about my son. Number one, he'd evidently forgotten where those French fries came from. I am the one who bought them. Number two, he doesn't understand that I have the power to take them all away from him. Or, if I wanted to, I could go buy 20 more large orders and bury him in French fries. Number three, My son didn't realize that if I wanted more fries for myself, I've got the money to go up and buy them and sit at another table and eat them all by myself. My son has an attitude problem. But then God spoke to me and said, that's exactly the attitude you have sometimes. You need to remember where your blessings come from. I'm the one who gave you these things. And you need to understand that I have the power to take them away from you or to give you more. And you need to understand that I don't need what you have. So all that stuff that everybody else has that you want, God owns it all. He gives it to us. He can take it away. We just need to remember that it's not really ours and thank God for what He has blessed us with. We need to remember who owns it all. And then finally this. Know that ultimately, only Jesus satisfies. 
Without Jesus, there will always be a hole in your life that nothing else can fill. Nothing else that I've suggested already will make you happy if you don't have a relationship with Jesus. There is no way to know contentment and freedom from covetousness without it. We were made for a relationship with God. And as long as we are not in relationship with Him, we have an itch that can't be scratched, a hunger that can't be filled. And you can throw anything you want at that need, but without Jesus, you will never be satisfied. It is only when we invite Jesus into our lives to be Savior and Lord that we will know true contentment and, as the Scripture says, a peace that passes all understanding. There's a song I want to share with you. You probably know this one. It's called, Only Jesus Can Satisfy Your Soul. It says, The world may try to satisfy that longing in your soul. You may search the wide world over, but you'll be just as before. You'll never find true satisfaction until you've found the Lord, for only Jesus can satisfy your soul. Only Jesus can satisfy your soul. Yes, only He can change your heart and make you whole. He'll give you peace you never knew, sweet joy and love and heaven too. For only Jesus can satisfy your soul. Verse 2. If I could have the fame and fortune, all the wealth, excuse me, if you could have the fame and fortune, all the wealth you could attain, yet not have Christ within, your living here would be in vain. There'll come a time when death will find you. Riches cannot help you then. So come to Jesus. Only He can satisfy. Only Jesus can satisfy your soul. Yes, only He can change your heart and make you whole. He'll give you peace you never knew, sweet joy and love and heaven too. Only Jesus can satisfy your soul. Yes, only Jesus can satisfy your soul. No drug, no drink, no human relationship, no adventure, no possession, no sexual experience, no sex change, no power, no status, no fame, no accomplishment, no amount of money, no philosophy, no educational degree, no occupation, no hobby, no recreation. None of these will satisfy your soul. We are wired for eternity and a relationship with our Creator. And the only way that happens is through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to 